ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. This is season five, episode three of the Frankenstein season. So spooky. I am your host, Catherine, STR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.co.uk. The book for this series is now out. If you search up the full context on Amazon, you can buy the book that goes along with this series, Frankenstein, the full context. You can also grab it on straighttalkenglish.co.uk forward slash books. And while you're on there, you can click support the show and give me a little donation if you like what I do. Do. All right, a massive thanks to our voice actors for this week. We have Spencer, who was on last week, being the voice of Edmund Burke. I did tell you, Edmund Burke is kind of important. He crops up again this week. Many thanks to Andrew for being the voice of the monk. Many thank yous indeed to Dan, who is the voice of the castle of otranto again if you like the sound of dan's voice and you're like man i wish i could hear that guy sing both of his bands that he is in we are a communist and dispute settlement mechanism have their records up on Bandcamp, or you can search them up they are both absolutely brilliant bands again we are a communist or dispute settlement mechanism dsm actually includes the voice of frankenstein's monster and one of of our voice actors from last season Freya so if you are a big fan of supporting people who are my friends then you may well wish to look that up today on a very very gothic day where I am is absolutely storming outside it has been a storm for now about 20 hours we are going to tell you about the first wave of the gothic so gothic literature comes in two waves generally frankenstein is the end of the first wave it comes back in the 1890s ish with dracula dorian gray jekyll and hyde but we're gonna leave that for now we're just gonna concentrate on the first wave where everything kicked off the date you want to remember for this is the 1790s this is the time when your average man on the street was a little bit worried there was a lot of worrying things out there the ultimate expert fred botting and if you want to read anything on the gothic look for anything by fred botting he is literally a professor of the gothic he said the 18th century fascination with a past of chivalry violence magical beings and malevolent aristocrats is bound up in the shift from feudal to commercial practices in which notions of propriety government and society were undergoing massive transformations the biggest transformation going on for people is in 1789 that is the french revolution which is incredibly incredibly important to so many literary things like trust me on this we all have always assumed that things will stay the same england has been a monarchy pretty consistently since 1066 it was assumed that everyone will stay the same brits are looking at france always been a monarchy and oh my gosh it is not anymore it's a republic the ordinary people who were just chilling are now massacring people and even people who thought the French Revolution was pretty awesome. Our Enlightenment philosophs were pretty upset as soon as things, by about 1792, had become incredibly violent in what we now call the Terror. Some people 
think that some bits of Frankenstein are actually a critique, a criticism of the French Revolution. So when the monster is hoping to be friends with the de Lacy's and he's like, oh, it's going to be this happy utopia where everyone holds hands and they're like, you're my friend, monster, and then they all hang out. When they don't give him that, he gets violent and smashes everything up just as the revolutionaries in France did when things didn't go their way. Things are also changing in less political ways. Scientific advancements in what we call the Industrial Revolution, as well as the Enlightenment, are changing England from your basic countryside place to an industrialised nation. Margaret Davidson argues the spectres of both the industrial and French revolutions and the many questions they raised about political economy, religious and spiritual reality, illegitimate and legitimate authority, the dangerous potential of mass literacy, individual rights and social responsibilities and socio-political repression and its impact on the individual continue to haunt Britons well into the 19th century. So everything is changing around you and people start to question a lot of things. They start to ask, do we even need a king? Do we need a Church of England? Do we? Would we be, would we be better off without both? The Enlightenment ideas that have been bubbling away have come back to the surface and Brits especially are starting to think what would that mean for us in England and this is where it gets cool so the Marquis de Sade the guy for whom the word sadism is named after French aristocrat a notoriously dodgy individual had this tremendous quote he said perhaps it is here we should analyze these new novels gothic in which sorcery and phantasmagoria scary ghosts constitute their entire merit let us agree that this style whatever may be said about it is undoubtedly not without merit it was in it was the inevitable fruit of the revolutionary shocks felt by the whole of europe for one knew all the misfortunes the wicked can afflict humanity the novel becomes more difficult to create british people were different from the french observers are seeing this happen but if we actually had to put our finger on why we're different from french people people can't really like put their finger on it like okay they speak french they're catholics we're not but like we aren't really that different and these anxieties about the french revolution and about change lead people to ask a lot of questions about what it means to be english what is distinct about the identity for edmund burke back again it was our devotion to the idea of liberty a spirit of innovation is generally the result of a selfish temper and confined views people will not look forward to posterity who never look backward to their ancestors besides the people of england well know that the idea of inheritance furnishes a sure principle of conservation and a sure principle of transmission without at all excluding a principle of improvement it leaves acquisition free, but it secures what it acquires. Whatever advantages are obtained by a state proceeding on these maxims are locked fast as in a sort of family settlement, grasped as in a kind of mortmain forever. By a constitutional policy working after the pattern of nature, we receive, we hold, we transmit our government and our privileges in the same manner in which we enjoy and transmit our property and our lives. The institutions of policy 
the goods of fortune, the gifts of providence, are handed down to us and from us in the same course and order. Our political system is placed in a just correspondence and symmetry with the order of the world, and with a mode of existence decreed to a permanent body composed of transitory parts, wherein, by the disposition of a stupendous wisdom, moulding together the great mysterious incorporation of the human race, the whole, at one time, is never old or middle-aged or young, but, in a condition of unchangeable constancy, moves on through the varied tenor of perpetual decay, fall, renovation and progression. Thus, by preserving the method of nature in the conduct of the state, in what we improve we are never wholly new, in what we retain we are never wholly obsolete. We, the British, according to Burke, are so blessed just by being British that we don't need a revolution. That's what makes us so special. We will not be affected by the turmoil in France. And yeah, 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 we've been a republic for 11 years after the Civil War finished. And in 1688, we'd got rid of an unsuitable king in what we call the Glorious Revolution. But still, people are starting to get a little bit worried. We've already lost the American colonies in 1776. Who are we now? Well, another way we can define ourselves, as I mentioned, is we're not Catholics. And as I said in the Macbeth series, anti-Catholicism is at the heart of so much literature. It's actually hilarious. Uh, For new viewers, my anti-Catholic anecdote, of course, is... I have to wear wellies, I cannot wear normal shoes if I want to lay flowers on my grandparents' grave. Why is this? Because as late as the early 1980s, they were not allowed to be buried in the regular part of the cemetery because they were Irish Catholics. They have to be buried in the bit with no paths. So due to very late Catholic phobia, I have to wear my proper boots if I want to lay flowers. Anti-Catholic sentiment is at the heart of so many things. The critic Leslie Fiedler argues that a lot of what we consider to be the hallmarks of gothic literature comes from this feeling. She says, like most other classic forms of the novel, the gothic romance is Protestant in its ethos. Indeed, it is the most blatantly anti-Catholic of A, projecting into its fables a consistent image of the church as the enemy. We have already noticed how stubborn and expected were the character of the depraved monk, the suborned inquisitor, the malicious abbess. Yet the gothic imagination feeds on what its principles abhor, the ritual and glitter, the politics and pageantry of the Roman church. Absolutely. I mean, think about Dracula in his vault. We don't really have vaults that much in the UK. It's kind of an Italiano thing but yeah it's this catholic imagery that's coming in think about our holy water man the thing that drives away the vampy vamp an important person is richard hurd h-u-r-d he was the bishop of worcester and he was one of the first people that tried to define britishness in terms of our cultural heritage so our tales of knights in armour, maidens in towers, King Arthur, Morris dancing, Stonehenge. This culture is what makes us who we 
are. This, interestingly, is where <laughs> our obsession with Shakespeare comes from. If it wasn't for 19th century people whipping themselves up into a frenzy about how shaky is this great British author, then maybe we wouldn't all be so obsessed with him now, but then again, where would the tourists go? Heard said, may there not be something in the gothic romance peculiarly suited to the views of a genius and to the ends of poetry? Would we know from what causes the institution of chivalry derived? The time of its birth, the situation of the barbarians amongst whom it arose must be considered. Their wants, designs and policies must be explored. We must inquire when and where and how it came to pass that the western world became familiarised with this prodigy, which we now start at. So yeah, Enlightenment, we're all obsessed with neoclassicism, the Greeks and the Romans. And fellas like Hurd are saying, well, actually, we don't need to be obsessed with ancient dead cultures. What we have in the UK is something which is equally as valid. Gothic as well, by which he means people who you would have been considered barbarians or barbarous by the standards of ancient Greece and Rome. There ends up being this massive revival in Britain's ancient past and the thing is most of that is actually like made up like oh yeah 500 years ago there were dragons and it was well scary but then there were knights yeah like people became obsessed with this stuff that's where all this like Celtic Celtic imagery comes from and that people are really into. Really popular guy is Ossian, who was a massive influence on William Blake, right? This Scottish guy called James Macpherson claimed to have found fragments of an ancient poem somewhere in Scotland by a bard called Ossian, which is so dramatic and so important for our heritage. And Bro just wrote them himself, but like it was a bestseller. And it's just ridiculous, ridiculous nonsense. But it's also the buildings that people are into, right? Gothic as an architectural trend. We've got Gothic buildings. We have Salisbury Cathedral, we have Carnarfon Castle, we have Brodie Castle, we have Oxford, we have Cambridge. It was replaced in the 17th century by like classical looking buildings so that's where we got like Whitehall and the Queen's House in Greenwich and because we're hero worshipping the ancient Greeks this gothic style of building is like barbaric old-fashioned we hate it but then it comes back it's our style before then it was seen as being like embarrassing and wonky but then with this renewed interest in a British identity oh oh this is our style oh it's called gothic it's awesome it's this cultural heritage one of uh, one of my favorite things actually an architectural review from 1804 said the gothic is eminently English in every respect by its early adoption and very general use for ages and it's having been brought to the greatest perfection in this country. It is the architecture of our history and our romance. So the question that my partner asked actually is why do we call spooky stories gothic? It's a good question. There's one person who can mainly answer this and that is Horace 
Walpole. He was the son of the first prime minister and he kind of did this like, you know, just chilling out, doing my grand tour around Europe, see what I'm gonna do as like a rich boy. And he got really into gothic architecture. He actually rebuilt his house uh, somewhere out in West London it's called Strawberry Hill and he built it to be like a proper gothic castle. He got well into this like elegance, this overblown style and he wrote a novel like a lot of these rich boys do. Be an architect, write a novel. It's the same where like, you know, you can have like five different jobs in your life and no one questions it. You know, like I'm a surgeon and a writer and a physicist and an alchemist it's like yeah cool bro you got a lot of time on your hands but his novel the castle of otranto is the first book to use gothic in its title in fact in its subtitle it's referred to as a gothic romance it is genuinely a very good book i've read it a few years ago and i reread it for this project we've got this lord of the castle manfred he wants to get rid of an ancient prophecy by marrying his dead son's fiance and then it all gets really really weird <laughs> so to cover this up walpole claimed that it was actually a translation of a medieval manuscript from 1529 because, you know, a guy who's writing fiction, like, should you be doing that, bro? He tried to bring together something new, which was exciting and grounded a little bit in reality. You know, people have got families. And old with, like, fantasy. So listen to the very first chapter of Castle of Otranto and tell me that there isn't a mixture of fantasy and reality in this glorious beginning. Manfred, Prince of Otranto, had one son and one daughter. The latter, a most beautiful virgin aged 18, was called Matilda. Conrad, the son, was three years younger, a homely youth, sickly and of no promising disposition. Yet he was the darling of his father, who never showed any symptoms of affection to Matilda. Manfred had contracted a marriage for his son with the Marquis of Vicenza's daughter Isabella, and she had already been delivered by her guardians into the hands of Manfred, that he might celebrate the wedding as soon as Conrad's infirm state of health would permit. Manfred's impatience for this ceremonial was remarked by his family and neighbours. The former, indeed, apprehending the severity of their prince's disposition, did not dare to utter their surmises on this precipitation. Hippolyta, his wife, an amiable lady, did sometimes venture to represent the danger of marrying their only son so early, considering his great youth and greater infirmities, but she never received any other answer than reflections on her own sterility, who had given him but one heir. His tenants and subjects were less cautious in their discourses. They attributed this hasty wedding to the prince's dread of seeing accomplished an ancient prophecy which was said to have pronounced that the castle and lordship of Otranto should pass from the present family whenever the real owner should be grown too large to inhabit it. It was difficult to make any sense of this prophecy, and still less easy to conceive what it had to do with the marriage in question. 
Yet these mysteries, or contradictions, did not make the populace adhere the less to their opinion. Young Conrad's birthday was fixed for his espousals. The company was assembled in the chapel of the castle, and everything ready for beginning the divine office, when Conrad himself was missing. Manfred, impatient of the least delay, and who had not observed his son retire, dispatched one of his attendants to summon the young prince. The servant, who had not stayed long enough to have crossed the court to Conrad's apartment, came running back breathless in a frantic manner, his eyes staring and foaming at the mouth. He said nothing, but pointed to the court. The company was struck with terror and amazement. The Princess Hippolyta, without knowing what was the matter, but anxious for her son, swooned away. Manfred, less apprehensive, Manfred, less apprehensive than enraged at the procrastination of the nuptials, and at the folly of his domestic, asked imperiously what was the matter. The fellow made no answer, but continued pointing towards the courtyard, and, at last, after repeated questions put to him, cried out, Oh, the helmet! The helmet! In the meantime, some of the company had run into the court, from whence was heard a confused noise of shrieks, horror, and surprise. Manfred, who began to be alarmed at not seeing his son, went himself to get information of what occasioned this strange confusion. Matilda remained endeavouring to assist her mother, and Isabella stayed for the same purpose, and to avoid showing any impatience for the bridegroom, for whom, in truth, she had conceived little affection. The first thing that struck Manfred's eyes was a group of his servants endeavouring to erase something that appeared to him a mountain of sable plumes. He gazed without believing his sight. "'What are you doing?' cried Manfred wrathfully. "'Where is my son?' A volley of voices replied, "'Oh, my lord, the prince! The prince! The helmet! The helmet!' Shocked with these lamentable sounds, and dreading he knew not what, he advanced hastily. But what a sight for father's eyes! <clears throat> but what a sight for a father's eyes! He beheld his child dashed to pieces, and almost buried under an enormous helmet a hundred times more large than any cask ever made for human being, and shaded with a proportionable quantity of black feathers. The horror of the spectacle, the ignorance of all around how this misfortune had happened, and above all the tremendous phenomenon before him, took away the prince's speech. Yet his silence lasted longer than even grief could occasion. He fixed his eyes on what he wished in vain to believe a vision, and seemed less attentive to his loss than buried in meditation on the stupendous object that had occasioned it. He touched, he examined the fatal cask, nor could even the bleeding, mangled remains of the young prince divert the eyes of Manfred from the portent before him. Walpole later claimed this has come out of a dream, which is the same sort of provenance that Mary Shelley gives Frankenstein. It's also quite fashionable to be like, a dream, the unreal nature of dreams, as like a, a thing that people want to credit for stuff they do. But the fact it's a romance rather than a novel is itself really interesting. So at that time, a novel 
is a fictional book that has an instructional narrative so you would read it some bad happens to the bad guy good things happen to the good guy we learn a lesson from it but the romance is designed for women specifically young women and he's kind of seems being like a little bit flighty a little bit pointless like dramatic heroes and villains and magic and murder and all this like it's a little bit of it all really and he has put together something which is both and it's this serious style and this trashy style which combine in gothic literature there are two other big names that we need to know about in the first wave of the gothic i'll talk to us about matthew lewis's the monk first of all he was 19 <laughs> and like many 19 year old edgelords rather than having things that were like oh no a ghost how terrible the monk confronted readers with an onslaught of horror in the form of spectral bleeding nuns mob violence murder sorcery and incest it is tremendously good by the way i was absolutely gripped by this there are people selling their souls to satan and a guy who accidentally marries a ghost i mean like what more do you even want <laughs> it was published in 1796 it was basically seen as being super blasphemous because this monk basically decides he wants a girlfriend and gets seduced and then sells his soul and then there's some incest and it's kind of terrible and it became this like cult thing where people would read it and be like can i stand it so right right listen to this bit of the monk the hero is trying to find his missus who's been locked in a dungeon all right see if you can bring yourself to listen to this lorenzo proceeded to raise the grate in which the nuns assisted him to the utmost of their strength the attempt was accomplished with little difficulty a deep abyss now presented itself before them whose thick obscurity the eye strove in vain to pierce the rays of the lamp were too deep to be of much assistance. Nothing was discernible save a flight of rough, unshapen steps which sank into the yawning gulf and was soon lost in darkness. The groans were heard no more, but all believed them to have ascended from this cavern. As he bent over it, Lorenzo fancied that he distinguished something bright twinkling through the gloom he gazed attentively upon the spot where it showed itself and was convinced that he saw a small spark of light now visible now disappearing he communicated this circumstance to the nuns they also perceived the spark but when he declared his intention to descend into the cave they united to oppose his resolution all their remonstrances could not prevail on him to alter it none of them had courage enough to accompany him neither could he think of depriving them of the lamp alone therefore and in darkness he prepared to pursue his design while the nuns were content to offer up prayers for his success and safety alone therefore and in darkness he prepared to pursue his design while the nuns were contented to offer up prayers 
for his success and safety. The steps were so narrow and uneven that to descend them was like walking down the side of a precipice. The obscurity by which he was surrounded rendered his footing insecure. He was obliged to proceed with great caution, lest he should miss the steps and fall into the gulf below him. This he was several times on the point of doing. However, he arrived sooner upon solid ground than he had expected. He now found that the thick darkness and impenetrable mists which reigned through the cavern had deceived him into belief of its being much more profound than it proved upon inspection. He reached the foot of the stairs unhurt. He now stopped and looked round for the spark which had before caught his attention. He sought it in vain. All was dark and gloomy. He listened for the groans, but his ear could caught no sound except the distant murmur of the nuns above as in low voices they repeated their Ave Marias. He stood irresolute to which side he should address his steps. At all events he determined to proceed, he did so, but slowly, fearing lest, instead of approaching, he should be retiring from the object of his search. The groans seemed to announce one in pain, or at least in sorrow, and he hoped to have the power of relieving the mourner's calamities. A plaintive tone sounding at no great distance at length reached his hearing. He bent his course joyfully towards it. It became more audible as he advanced, and he soon beheld again the spark of light which a low, projecting wall had hitherto concealed from him. It proceeded from a small lamp which was placed upon a heap of stones, and whose faint and melancholy rays served rather to point out and dispel the horrors of a narrow, gloomy dungeon formed in one side of the cavern. It also showed several other recesses of similar construction, but whose depth was buried in obscurity. Coldly played the light upon the damp walls, whose dew-stained surface gave back a feeble reflection. A thick and pestilential fog clouded the height of the vaulted dungeon. As Lorenzo advanced, he felt a piercing chillness spread itself through his veins. The frequent groans still engaged him to move forwards. He turned towards them, and by the lamp's glimmering beams beheld in a corner of this loathsome abode a creature stretched upon a bed of straw so wretched, so emaciated, so pale, that he doubted to think a woman. She was half-naked, her long, dishevelled hair fell in disorder over her face and almost entirely concealed it. One wasted arm hung listlessly upon a tattered rug which covered her convulsed and shivering limbs. The other was wrapped round a small bundle and held it closely to her bosom. A large rosary lay nearby. A large rosary lay near. A large rosary lay near her. Opposite to her was a crucifix, on which she bent her sunk eyes fixedly, and by her side stood a basket and a small earthen pitcher. I'm surprised you survived. 
<laughs> no, it's actually pretty good. I, I genuinely enjoyed the monk. I really, really recommend it. But the other, the flip side of it, and a lot of people argue that gothic is a quite a feminine genre of writing. It's written by women for women to a certain extent. And partly where this comes from is the other big hitter in the early gothic, the mysteries of Udolfo. It has this layer of sentiment. We've got a haunted castle story with this lovely girl whose stepfather keeps forcing her to try and get married locked in a castle and it's a bit psychological about how her mind kind of unravels. The monk is very like, ew this is happening but no one really goes mad. Mysteries of Udolfo is about how your mind interacts with your setting. I will say it was a lot more difficult to read than the monk because it owes a lot to romanticism. There are pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of just descriptions of countryside and I was like I know I want to read this for this project, I know it's good but it's just no, no, no. <laughs> but from these two, we can think about horror and terror. Terror is the feeling of dread. Terror kind of comes from the French Revolution, 1792, as I mentioned, the terror. The feeling of being caught up in the violence. It's a psychological fear, a psychological worry. That's your terror. The horror, on the other hand, is the grisly, like, oh, I can't believe I'm seeing that. Oh. And that's what we get in The Monk. It's but well, they're both what we get in Frankenstein, right? So we've got the terror of knowing the monster is stalking Frankenstein. He can never quite escape. And the horror from the fact he's digging up bits of dead people. This is the issue I have with a lot of these like very gore-heavy movies, by the way. They're not scary. They're just like, oh, really? Whereas some of the better horror movies in the genre actually have a lot more terror than they do horror. Where does this come back into Frankenstein? Well, romantics in general look to the medieval world for inspiration because they were quite disenchanted with all of this classicism. For example, Percy Shelley, husband of Mary, wrote a gothic novel called Zastrozzi, <laughs> which had uh, abduction, castles, murder and ghosts. Lord Byron peppered lightly like he's making a recipe, his epic poem Don Juan, with super gothic moments. Just like this bit, right? But still the shade remained, the blue eyes glared and rather variably for stony death, yet one thing rather good the grave had spared, the ghost had a remarkably sweet breath. A straggling curl showed he had been fair-haired, a red lip with two rows of pearls beneath gleamed forth as though the casement's ivy shroud the moon peeped just escaped from a grey cloud. Cloud and shroud, alright. Cool, cool, cool. So yeah, it was an absolute bestseller. Everyone loved Don Juan. The other thing is it links back to the stupid sublime again, right? The only way, according to 1790s thinkers, was the only way for someone to be scared was if it was balanced 
the scary bits in a book were balanced out by descriptions of natural beauty. So that means that we're unhappy at the scary bits, but we've got the natural beauty to kind of put us in perspective to make sure we have this mix of fantasy and real world. Both Udolfo and Frankenstein will flip between these long passages of like mountains, 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 and then creepy stuff happening. So I mentioned a boundary that the gothic crosses is between real life and not real life. So Geneva, a real place. Is it full of doctors who cut up their people and reanimate them? Probably not. I've never been, but I'm assuming no. Gothic, right? Novels are written by men to instruct people. No, no, no. These are written sometimes by girls. For fun, it's crossing a boundary. We've got real things, a castle that's lived in by a scary ghost. Our safe home, like Frankenstein's, is invaded by a scary creature, the monster. We've moved forward as a civilization, but things that we thought we'd left behind, medieval type stuff, has come back to haunt us. We think we're a nice settled society, but oh wait, there's a rabble saying down with the king. We thought that was behind us. It's past and present. Gothic is scary because it crosses these boundaries. Frankenstein crosses a lot of boundaries. It looks back to the medieval and up to date with the technology. It's from a woman and it's not designed to educate. It's designed to be fun. It's mixing terror, horror, real life and the natural world. Frankenstein is the most goth thing ever. I am recording this a couple of weeks in advance of Halloween and I ask just one thing, one thing, dear listeners. Please do not say you are dressing as Frankenstein for Halloween. You may well dress as Frankenstein's monster or the creature, but unless you are wearing a lab, go- a lab coat and looking a bit stressed, you are not dressing as Frankenstein. I once had an advert, an advert, an argument with a 12 year old that went on for a good 10 minutes about why I was wrong. And trust me, I'm not. But go as something gothic. Go on, go as something gothic for Halloween. I think I might go as a pumpkin. To be honest, this is a long episode today. Thank you very, very much for listening. I am Catherine. I am your host, SDR8. Talk English on Twitter. Tweet me. straighttalkenglish.co.uk forward slash books by the book that goes along with this series. It's called Frankenstein The Full Context. It's rather good. Or you can go on Amazon. You can search it up. Or if you're on my website, you can have a look at support the show and drop me a little donation. All right. Next week, we are getting on to the meat of Frankie. We're going to start talking about Mary Shelley. Have a very spooky week, guys. Do not let the horror and terror consume you. And I'll see you in a week's time.